Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to Spy Talk. More tensions around the world this week, much of it in the psychological warfare realm, with Russia massing troops on its border with Ukraine and China playing chicken with Taiwan. But We're going to stay closer to home this week with two intel-oriented interviews that we hope you'll find as scintillating as we did. In one, I asked Mark Olshaker, co-author of the immensely popular Mindhunter books, how it is that two notorious sexual predators at the CIA were able to elude discovery for so long. We probably do have a problem, but we have a problem everywhere in society. So I don't know that I would single out the intelligence community, except to say that probably some of the skills that um, make them good intelligence agents also make them uh, fairly efficient as predators. That's Mark Olshaker. We'll be back with more of that discussion later in the show. Gene? Technology is revolutionizing the spy game. We talked just a few weeks ago about how hard it is, for instance, to work undercover because we leave so many crumbs of data behind us everywhere we go. But that data, a lot of it publicly accessible, can also be an incredibly valuable tool for intelligence agencies and one that Amy Ziegart doesn't think is being taken full advantage of. Ziegart, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University, rings the alarm in her upcoming book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, the History and Future of American Intelligence. I asked her to define a term we often hear, open source intelligence. I think the easiest way to think about open source intelligence is anything that is publicly available. So if you think about it, it could be things posted on the internet. It could be terrorist videos, right? It could be public speeches. It could be uh, satellite imagery from commercial satellites. So it's a wide range of different types of information, but it's distinguished by being publicly available. So it's not what you would get from a Google search. It could be what you get from a Google search, but the, the real difference in intelligence is it's not clandestinely acquired. Right, so it's not secretly acquired. It's there for someone with an internet connection or uh, access um, to the internet to get. So what can you do with this information? How can you put this together? Well, I think you know, the key thing with open source information is, is what you allude to, which is that the value or the insight often comes from putting it together. We're drowning in data today, right? The amount of data on earth is estimated to be doubling every two years. So there's tremendous amounts of data out there. I'll give you an example of how creative people can put it together. So you know the um, troops were wearing Fitbits and doing their exercise runs. There was a a story about this and and uploading their information to the internet. And if you gathered that publicly available information, you could actually determine the locations of our bases, some of which were not publicly known and the sort of routines by which soldiers were actually doing their exercise runs, which could actually compromise the security of these bases. Um, We think about um, 
criminal cases that are now being solved by DNA, right, matched with genealogy websites. So our data, it can be used in all sorts of ways that we don't realize. Now, you know, put in the hands of um, well-meaning people that want to help the U.S. government, that can be an incredible benefit. But it also provides, you know, some pretty serious risks, right, to national security. Is the intelligence community using this information? Are they using it effectively? So the intelligence community has always used open source information. Typically, different public estimates say about 80% of information in a typical intelligence report is based on open, openly available information. That was true in the Cold War, it's true now. The challenge is how do you harness all of this new information that's available online? And I would argue, and I, and I argue in my book, um, that the intelligence community is not doing nearly enough to transform itself to take advantage of this information revolution. Why not? Well, secret agencies like their secrets, right? And one intelligence, a former intelligence official joked to me, he said, you know, we like to think inside the intelligence community that if a piece of information costs a trillion dollars to get, it's worth a trillion dollars, right? Open source information is free, right? It's usually, it's widely available. And so that is an unnatural act to focus on the open source intelligence. It's like, I always say it's like before World War II, the Air Force was part of the army, right? And there was real concern that because the Air Force was underneath an organization that favored ground operations, that we'd never give air power the attention and respect it deserved, which is why the Air Force was separated after World War II into its own service. Open source intelligence is like that. It will always be the second class citizen in organizations that prize secrets and clandestinely acquired intelligence. Do you believe that the intelligence agencies should be developing their own artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities to wade through this mass of data? Or is this kind of thing that they should be tapping into the private sector for? I think they need to be tapping into the private sector much more for this, right? We, we are in a very different world. It used to be in the Cold War that these kinds of technological cutting edge inventions started in the government and then they became commercialized. Now it's the opposite. Most of the cutting edge uh, developments in technology are starting in the private sector and the government, including the intelligence community has to figure out a way to adopt and scale them faster. So if we think about where is the talent going, where are the inventions coming from? They are coming increasingly from the private sector. So this is an urgent need for the intelligence community as well as the defense department to be able to get these innovations inside and adopt them quickly. Is there enough sharing of open source intelligence within the government? You know, that's a great question. Um, the, I would answer there's never enough sharing within the government on anything, right? And, and we know this because, you know, classification um, makes sharing difficult. But you, your, your question suggests something that's very interesting, which is one of the huge benefits, I think, that is largely unappreciated about open source intelligence when it comes from the outside is that it's shareable, right? So in the nuclear threat space, there's a whole ecosystem of non-governmental actors. Some of them are my colleagues here at Stanford and they're collecting and analyzing open source intelligence about North Korea, about Iran and other nuclear threats. And one of the benefits of what they're doing as opposed to inside the government is that information can be shared. It can be shared within the US government easily because there aren't classification restrictions it can be shared with other countries. It can be shared with the public. 
And that can generate attention to some of these issues in ways that classification doesn't allow. Are our adversaries and our competitors using this? Yes, they are. And um, in fact, I have a research assistant right now digging up specific cases where our adversaries are using open source intelligence. And one example that readily comes to mind is, is when Iran uh, waged that ballistic missile attack on U.S. troops that's been widely reported. They used commercial satellite imagery. Right. They didn't have their own satellites, spy satellites, identifying where they were going to send those missiles. They used commercial, widely available satellite imagery. If you're a foreign intelligence service and you want to identify people that you might want to approach, right, to recruit, uh, you know, you can do that on LinkedIn, right? You can do that on Facebook and public profiles. I mean, much of our data is so readily available that if you then put that together with the secret intelligence, say in the case of China, uh, that they stole from the Office of Personnel Management, right? And medical records from Anthem, which they stole also through cyber means. Now you've got a pretty powerful set of data, you know, a, a much richer data set to operate from. So are we way behind the eight ball? I wouldn't say we're way behind the eight ball, but I do think this is an adapt or fail moment for the intelligence community. It's a moment I think as serious and transformational uh, as the moment to adapt to terrorism was after 9-11. The train has left the station when it comes to technology. We are living at a moment where we have never had so many different technologies changing so much so fast. So you mentioned artificial intelligence. We mentioned data. More than half the world is online. We have more people with cell phones than running water. We have commercial satellites that can give us imagery and dynamic understanding of what's happening on earth in real time. That used to only be governments that could do that and only superpower governments really that had that kind of capability. So this is a dramatically different moment. And if the intelligence community can't harness these technologies and can't understand how they're transforming the world, we will be behind. Let me ask you about the downside. One. Can it be spoofed? Can um, fake information be intentionally introduced that will potentially lead us astray? Absolutely. So I think with this open source, we think about open source intelligence isn't just information, it's an ecosystem, right? It's a bunch of different actors operating outside of governments, some of them with good intentions, some of them with nefarious intentions. So, um, you know, we're in an era now where just about any information can be faked, right? You've seen deep fake videos, you've seen the cheap fake videos, the cheap fakes of Nancy Pelosi seemingly drunk, which was a sort of low budget version of a, of a deep fake. So this kind of information can be faked, it can be intentionally made to be deceptive. Um, and that means that intelligence agencies increasingly will have to serve as verifiers of last resort. So debunking a lot of information uh, that can get to policymakers' attention. We've been talking about it from the military and intelligence point of view, but um, law enforcement has sometimes used this as well. And it's been characterized as an end run around the constitution. It's warrantless surveillance. What's your response to those kinds of criticisms? Well, I think, and we've seen public reporting on this, that law enforcement agencies have been using tools like facial recognition algorithms, 
without understanding all of the risks that they pose to civil liberties. So there's not enough oversight in particular over local law enforcement organizations and the technological tools they're using. I think there tends to be a, a feeling that algorithms are neutral, right? That they're objective, but they are not. They have the same biases that humans have. So bias in, bias out. And so we have seen cases of false facial recognition algorithms falsely accusing more likely people of African-American uh, descent um, because those facial recognition algorithms work better on lighter skin faces than darker skin faces. And so what you see is the same kind of bias uh, that is replicated in algorithms. And, uh, but the assumption is that the algorithms don't lie because it's, it's a computer and that is wrong. So I think it is a real concern for state and local law enforcement about the tools they're using and what do they know, how much do they know the, the risks that those technologies bring. It isn't just about facial recognition, though. There are a lot of other data points that can be collected, and the Chinese are doing that and scoring their people, and people with better scores get more privileges, for example. It could be a tool of repression as it has been in China. It absolutely can be. And I think we're living in a moment where um, there needs to be a real reconciling of how, what does privacy mean and who has the power to do what. So on the one hand, yes, we absolutely need guardrails so the government can't access all of our information and use it in ways that we don't understand or may not approve. On the other hand, the private sector needs guardrails about how it uses our data too. So it does bother me that Google and Facebook know much more about me and can send me creepy things online than the US government knows about me. At least with the US government, there is the, the role of national security, right? But with private sector firms, it's just profit. And they know a creepy amount about us and can use our data in ways that we might not imagine or approve of um, with when we sign those um, uh, privacy agreements that are gazillions of pages long that nobody understands. So I think on the one hand, the government needs guardrails, but also needs more power, circumscribed, but more to harness data to protect the nation. On the other hand, the private sector absolutely needs more um, guardrails about how they use our data. What is your favorite example of how open source intelligence has been used? There's so many great ones. Um, I guess I'll share one that I watched happen in real time as I was finishing my book. So I have a whole chapter on open source nuclear threat analysis in uh, my book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. And a year and a half ago, it was 4th of July weekend in 2020. And on July the 2nd, at two in the morning, a fire breaks out in Iran. And the flames of this fire are so bright, they're detected by a weather satellite in space. Two non-governmental nuclear sleuths, um, one of them works in the East Coast, one in the West Coast, independently, uh, see what's going on. And the Iranian regime originally puts out a picture and a statement saying there was an industrial shed that caught on fire it was under construction anyway, and the damage was limited. Pay no attention to this industrial shed was essentially the message that the government put out. This is their atomic energy organization that released a photo. Within hours, these two sleuths, David Albright and Fabian Hines, concluded that the regime was lying. They geolocated the building. They don't have a security clearance. 
right? They're not do, using any classified information, just using their computers. They geolocate the building. It's the centrifuge assembly facility at Natanz, one of the key facilities in Iran's nuclear program. They also conclude using only publicly available information that the fire was not small, it was large, probably caused by an explosion, possibly the result of sabotage. Within a matter of hours, their information is being carried by ABC News. By afternoon, it's in the New York Times. By the evening, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is asked about this and whether Israel is responsible for sabotage of Iran's nuclear program. This all happened in one day. It all happened with unclassified open source information, and it all happened because of collection and analysis outside the US government. That is, that is the speed and the nature of the open source world that we're now in. So do you have any discomfort about the fact that a lot of this analysis is taking place outside the government? In this instance, it was helpful, but it wouldn't be in every instance. I'm sure it could expose some things the government would prefer were not public. There are absolutely risks uh, that this community brings. So their insights aren't always vetted. These two particular uh, non-proliferation researchers are very thoughtful, they're very responsible, but not everybody is. You can alert adversaries to the fact that maybe they're not concealing their capabilities as much as they thought they were, and which means they're going to fix those problems so they become harder for governments to track. There are a number of concerns but there are also a number of benefits of this open source community. What are the things you believe the intelligence community could learn and learn faster if they were using open source intelligence? I think that you know, intelligence at the end of the day is a race for insight, right? It is about sense making, understanding what's happening in the world faster and better than our enemies. And so I think on a range of different topics, you name it, right? What's happening with the climate? What are China's military capabilities? What are proliferation risks? Open source can shed light on any question you can imagine. So I think, you know, the, in terms of, you know, what specifically could open source help the intelligence community with? The answer is just about everything. Is there failure to exploit this an opportunity lost? Yes, it is an opportunity lost. If we think that the proliferation of new technologies is leveling the playing field, and I do, right? If we think about Iran can use commercial satellites, it doesn't have to spend a billion dollars, right? Building and launching its own. That non-state actors or weak states can wage cyber attacks that we can't defend against because our military doesn't keep us safe in the same way. Sheer firepower doesn't protect the United States like it does in physical space. Um, then it means we, we are losing the intelligence edge, right? These technologies are, people talk about the democratization of intelligence. These technologies are empowering our adversaries with capabilities to understand us and to seize opportunities and the gap between the ability of the United States with all of our, our $85 billion intelligence budget and 18 agencies, that gap between what we can understand in the world and what others can understand in the world is narrowing. And it's narrowing pretty quickly. So what do and, we do about it? 
And so this is a, so my proposal, the most important thing to me, and I grant that I have many friends in the intelligence community that want to arm wrestle me over this one. I think if we had to pick, if I had to pick one thing that I'd want, my queen of the world recommendation above all else, because there are many things I'd want to change in the, in the intelligence community to improve it, it would be to create a new standalone open source intelligence agency. Now I say that with some hesitation since we have 18 agencies already, and I've long argued that coordination is a fundamental challenge of intelligence. And when you have 19, it's harder to coordinate them than 18. But if we really want to give open source intelligence the attention it needs, if we want, as we mentioned earlier, to be able to adopt AI tools and other tools faster, we have to have a standalone agency with its own stakeholders, its own talent, and it needs to be located in places where young engineers want to live, right? So you forward locate parts of this agency in places like Silicon Valley and Austin uh, and Cambridge, where you have a talent pool of engineers. So I think that above all, both in terms of focusing on open source, dealing with the talent problem, and adopting technological tools is the most important thing. So I'm a little confused because earlier you said you thought the intelligence community should tap into the private sector and use their resources. And now you're saying there should be an independent agency. You need to do both, right? And think about one of the challenges for the intelligence community of working with the private sector is some CEOs don't wanna be seen walking in the door of the national security agency. But now imagine you have an open source agency that deals in unclassified information, much easier to coordinate and collaborate with the private sector when you're talking about open source publicly available information. So they're not mutually exclusive at all. And I also think we need to think about tapping into the private sector as um, it's both about technology and it's about people. We want people to go in and out of the private sector and, and government. Right? We, we need to have people in the private sector who understand intelligence and can work in and out of the intelligence community. As I say, we need ambassadors, not lifers, right, inside the IC. Although usually the flow is one way. It's from government to private industry. It usually is, but it, but it can't be if we really want to make our intelligence successful in the next century. That was Amy Ziegart, author of the forthcoming book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. She also was a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford. This is such a beguiling and frustrating subject, Gene, uh, open source intelligence. You know, I always think back to the Chinese, which have mastered this sort of breadcrumbing of intelligence. They, they suck up everything. They, they vacuum up research papers, uh, you know, think tank papers and discussions and uh, send it all back to Beijing whether, where it's poured over and analyzed. And of course, they're applying artificial intelligence, AI to it now. And uh, although we've made some strides, as you, you guys talked about uh, in developing more resources for open source intelligence, it's still not really uh, top of the food chain when it comes to uh, collection and I believe because of AI, it's going to become more important. But in the meantime, we should really rely more, I think, on the State Department's intelligence analysis and what the folks at DNI are doing, because after all, the CIA's operations are clandestine, and that's the way they've always been, and that's the way they like it.
Yeah, federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies are certainly not blind to the issue, and some are experimenting with using open source intelligence. They badly want to do more, but budgets are a factor and slow acquisition processes, also a factor that's stymieing their efforts. We'll be back in just a moment to talk about sexual predators in the intelligence community. And a reminder, you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. Do so. A lot of great content there. Okay, now on to something a little bit more disturbing. Last summer, a longtime undercover CIA operations officer by the name of Brian Jeffrey Raymond was arrested in Mexico after a woman fled into the streets from his apartment and told police she had been drugged and raped. Brian Jeffrey Raymond is now on trial back at home in the U.S., having worked for his government for 23 years in various missions across the world. Other than that, we don't know much about his diplomatic career. The FBI launched an investigation into him after he abruptly left Mexico last year, shortly after a nude woman was seen screaming for help from the balcony of his Mexico City apartment. She says she doesn't remember what happened the night before, except that he'd offered her food and drinks. Raymond eventually confessed to crimes with several other women. The FBI found so much photographic evidence on his cell phone that it put out a public request for other women to come forward. It was the second known case of a ranking CIA officer arrested for so-called date rapes. Curious about how they had escaped notice for so long, I called up Mark Olshaker, an investigative reporter and co-author of the popular Mindhunter books with former FBI profiler John Douglas, and I asked him what he'd learned about such sociopaths over his decades of research. Mark Olshaker, welcome to Spy Talk. You've written about nine books with the legendary FBI agent and profiler John Douglas. The Mindhunter series has been a spectacular success in the criminal history, entertainment, and investigative genres. One of your books in 1998 was called Obsession, Killers, Rapists, Stalkers, and Their Victims how to handle them, and so on. So I thought you would be a great person to talk to about the issue of sexual predators in the intelligence community. And my interest in this was sparked by the arrest recently and and plea agreement with Brian Raymond, a CIA officer in Mexico, who, by the way, was also fluent in Mandarin Chinese, according to reports. A decade ago, I wrote about another case of a CIA officer arrested and prosecuted for sexual predations with women. His name was Andrew Warren. Do you think we have a problem in the intelligence community with sexual predators? Well, Jeff, first of all, thanks for having me on. And uh, we probably do have a problem, but we have a problem everywhere in society. So I don't know that I would single out the intelligence community except to say that probably some of the skills that um, make them good intelligence agents also make them uh, fairly efficient as as predators. Most of these guys um, 
they're very good at the art of seduction. That's one of the reasons that they, uh, they are in the profession that they are. Uh, they know how to dissemble. And manipulate. Manipulate. They know how to lie. Um, and of the articles you sent me, uh, the one guy recently uh, convicted uh, is, a, is a pretty good looking guy. He looks like he's probably pretty charming. So uh, I think it's just like anything else. We have uh, bad actors in all levels of society. And uh, the bad actors in this field probably have additional skills which uh, help them at predation. Absolutely. Uh, I've been reading up a little bit about the psychology of sexual predators. And one of the articles I read this morning said that one of the uh, arenas in which they operate is the workplace. Sure. Uh, and it would seem to me that these guys that we know about, Andrew Warren and uh, Brian Raymond, uh, would have exhibited some of this behavior in their own workplaces, in the CIA stations or the embassy. So it, it raises the question of why someone didn't pick up on these problems with these individuals earlier. Well, first of all, you've got to contextualize this in that they didn't pick up on a lot of these issues throughout society. I mean, we've seen in Hollywood, all the predation we've seen in the Catholic Church, all the predation. So, you know, unless you, you know, as well as I do as a reporter, uh, Jeff, unless you're looking for something, you're not going to find it. And probably for a long time, they weren't looking for it. But um, again, one of the issues is that one of the reasons they were selected for this post, probably, and for this profession, uh, is because of skills that also help them that way. So in other words, if you are a predator to begin with, and you have these, uh, these skills of seduction, of lying, of, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be a real problem. And uh, you won't necessarily recognize the things that make them predators, which are a lack of empathy, uh, a total narcissism, not caring about other people, willing to manipulate and use people for their own uh, ends. Um, look, I, I mean, I, I've read your column for a long time. I know that uh, one of the things that makes somebody a good case agent is being able to use people for their own ends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing we've learned through some of the more notorious uh, Hollywood cases uh, and then there was the Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein case, is that there are sort of institutional checks on people being reported out, careers are at stake and so on. And I suppose it would be no different in CIA, in a CIA station or uh, in the State Department, in the embassies and so on, is that no one wants to upset the apple cart um, at great risk to their own career reporting on someone who's a sexual predator. Sure, that, that's, that's absolutely true. And uh, for that matter, if somebody is ahead of you in the pecking order, um, they've probably figured out a way to get back at you as well. Mm -hmm, exactly. I was actually catching up on the morning show, that Apple TV series, uh, which really goes into this issue through drama uh, to, with, with great nuance about the difficulties of rooting out sexual predators in large organizations. But let's talk about the intelligence community. Mm -hmm. They have regular polygraphs in the CIA uh, and, to, uh, and, and, and certain branches of the FBI. So um, these predators obviously were able to beat the polygraph. 
and 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 also that their behavior psychologists say would have developed during their adolescence long before they joined the cia how is it that they're able to get through these trip wires well first of all i absolutely agree that the uh, behavior would have would have developed during adolescence or probably even before if you have no regard for other people and again if you have all these very narcissistic or or borderline personality disorder tendencies it would and those are not necessarily things that would show up say in a job interview or even a background check as far as the polygraph i'm afraid that uh, john douglas and i have never set much store in a polygraph um, they're like locks and keys they're uh, they're mm-hmm. good for people like us who have a basic uh, baseline of uh, of morality or respect for the system um, but if you're uh, if you're good at lying to another person, uh, lying to a box is not that much of a uh, is not that much of a challenge. There are all kinds of ways of getting around uh, polygraph for somebody who knows what they're doing, both pharmaceutical ways of doing it, and also just uh, if you don't have any conscience, uh, you're not going to necessarily uh, register uh, an unusual galvanic skin response or uh, mm-hmm. change in pulse if somebody asks you a question in a polygraph exam. Yeah, the notorious turncoat Aldrich Ames uh, explained at length, actually, how he was able to beat the polygraphs. Uh, and he was exhibiting outlandish behavior. He was a drunk at work and so on. Uh, yet when he was polygraphed, no deception. He just sailed right through. Well, you also have to understand that a lot of these sociopaths or, or the term that we now use is psychopath. Um, and psychopath doesn't necessarily mean a criminal, but it means someone without uh, any kind of uh, social organization to their their behavior. Um, they can often lead double lives and compartmentalize. I mean, Robert Hansen, who I know you're very familiar with, was mm. an, an upstanding member of his church. Uh, he was uh, a, apparently a very effective uh, FBI agent, and yet uh, he was selling secrets to the Russians for years and years. And we often think of uh, a traitor having the three pr- my main motivations of booze, broads, and bucks. But I think in a lot of cases, it's also resentment against the system, resentment that uh, you are not getting your due, that you're not where you should be. Um, and so, you know, this this sense of resentment can also uh, manifest itself in using other people or using and abusing. Them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, the polygraph might not have caught these guys. But here's the big danger mm-hmm. is that an opposition intelligence service. Uh, gets wind of someone's aberrations and blackmails them, can use this as blackmail. Of course, our case officers look for weaknesses sure. uh, among Chinese and Russians and Iranians and so on that we can exploit. And the Russians and the Chinese uh, use this against us. So, Absolutely. so these, these sociopaths who pass the polygraph and uh, are, go remain undetected at work they're exposing themselves to blackmail from enemy services. Yeah, and I, I what I what I would wonder about uh, with with the cases that you you sent me to study, Jeff, is um, why were some of these women not uh, taken more seriously early on? I wonder if that's also contextualized in terms of the time and uh, uh, women's charges against men as predators just weren't being taken seriously. 
Sure. Um, and we know uh, from public literature, memoirs and so on over the years that uh, office romances between bosses and subordinates were quite common. Um, sure. We know that certainly at, at CIA, probably less to lesser degree at FBI. I'm just guessing at that. Yeah. And let me let, let me mention one other thing. Uh, you also, um, from your reporting days, certainly remember uh, the tailhook scandal. And everyone said, how could this be allowed to happen? That was Navy pilots going wild with. Right. That's yeah. that's right. Um, but again, these are people who lead high risk lives by and large, um, and they are risk takers. They are adventure seekers. So it is understandable that they would uh, can. I'm not condoning this, believe me, but that they would consider sexual. Let's not call it predation from their point of view. Let's call conquest. it conquest from yeah. their point of view, that they would consider sexual conquest as part of their brief or at least part of the privilege of their job. In other words, I'm, I'm living on the edge and this is just part of living on the edge. Again, mm -hmm. I'm not condoning it, but I think it all probably goes along with the personality. Mm -hmm. Now, from all your work with John Douglas, all your investigations of FBI behavior, criminal behavior, and so on, the behavioral a unit at FBI. Do you have any tips for how these predators could be detected earlier? Well, I think one of the things that you probably see is a certain amount of arrogance, a certain amount of self-confidence, a certain swagger and feeling that the rules don't apply to that person. Whenever you see that, um, that should at least raise some some questions, and then of course, have have to see how they treat other women, how they treat their wives if they're married, uh, how they treat other women. All of these can be uh, a tip off. I mean, John Douglas has always said, uh, and he said this to his daughters: If you want to know how a man is going to treat a woman, look at how he treats his mother. So, I mean, it's a simple uh, thing, but uh, there are things if you if you're looking for it if you're if your antenna are up for this kind of uh this kind of abuse this kind of manipulation um and it's it's the same thing with uh with the catholic church why did this amount of i mean most priests are very decent very good people but why did this degree of predation uh particularly against children uh why did this go on for so long it's because people weren't looking for it and when they found it they uh, accepted it. I mean, for instance, you know, I think uh, when they found it in the Catholic Church, uh, the church leaders would probably say, well, this is a sin and you have to atone for it. Um, I would say this is a crime and you have to pay for it. But it wasn't looked at that way. And it probably wasn't looked at that way in the intelligence service either for a long time. I'm, I'm sure it's that way. Uh, um, you know, you see this in police departments, too. Um, you, you, see, you see it in any situation where people have authority. And that's why I keep bringing back uh, and what, where people have unequal relationships, which is why I keep bringing back the church uh, into this. The church, that, I think that's a pretty good analogy. The, the church has also had sort of go away homes, uh, quiet places for priests to go to, uh, to contemplate on their, to meditate on their sins. Right. My uh, sister and brother-in-law actually lived nearby one in Rhode Island uh, and, and was known as a place where priests were sent to uh, 
meditate on their sins. Obviously, that was not a curing sort of thing, but at least it got them out of the church where they were preying on young boys. So uh, do you know if the intelligence community has programs like that? Well, I know that they have programs uh, for people that they consider are burned out or have mental issues that they uh, bring them to from time to time, whether it's specifically for this, I don't know. What I would be very curious to find out, you're probably better equipped to find this out than I am as an investigative reporter, Jeff, but uh, uh, the two cases you uh, sent me were both people who were stationed overseas, who dealt in clandestine activities, um, who worked uh, under embassy cover, uh, and who spoke many languages. I wonder if the desk-bound analysts at Langley uh, fit the same profile. I kind of doubt it. <laughs> yeah, I actually did a piece uh, years ago about uh, psychological profiling of CIA uh, employees and uh, uh, CIA, uh, a psychiatrist who treats CIA people you know, broke down the personality differences and uh, the uh, the case officers, the field operatives are risk takers. You can't sit them at a desk for hours. They, sure. they, got, they got to be out doing something, taking mm -hmm. risks. They love it. They're excitement junkies. Uh, the analyst, totally different, very careful, meticulous, uh, as, he, as he put it. He said, they go out to the parking lot after work, uh, and as they're opening their, the, the door of their car to go home, they think, did I leave that drawer open? And they go back. <laughs> And they go back into the building to recheck that they haven't left any classified documents out. Now, they're more stay-at-homes. But then again, if they reflect the population at large, uh, there is going to be a percentage of them who engage in very unhealthy activities and maybe even criminal activities. Uh, and Sweden, sure. catching, catching criminals, the FBI, as you know, has a very robust program of trolling online for chi uh, uh, child predators. Mm -hmm. uh, I suspect that they are picking up people and police. Uh, actually, we know of some cases, picking up people and police and security agencies, homeland security agencies, intelligence agencies. I suspect that they're, they're finding uh, people online from those agencies. They are. And of course, with technology comes more opportunities to offend and commit crimes, but also more opportunities to uh, catch people. I mean, for instance, the one you sent me, uh, the most recent one, uh, once they honed in on him and seized his computer, they found a lot of incriminating evidence right on the computer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are like trophy pictures. Yeah, exactly. And uh, is that part of the mentality, by sure, the way? Ab absolutely. Um, with uh, serial predators, particularly serial killers, we often find that they want to take some kind of uh, uh, some kind of trophy to remind themselves of uh, of their triumph. I mean, Often it's things that you might expect, like uh, like underwear uh, from the women that they've had, but uh, or jewelry. Uh, sometimes jewelry which they'll give to their wives or girlfriends. Interestingly enough, but also things even more basic, like driver's licenses, which have a photo of the hmm. uh, person on it. So I was not at all surprised to see uh, what you call these these trophy pictures, uh, indications of uh, of his triumphs and ability to manipulate these women after they were unconscious, uh, either before or after he'd had sex with them. That is so sick. I, I don't think I want to, that's sort of TMI territory, yeah. I think, for the listeners. Of well, you call it talk. TMI, I call it evidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure this won't uh, be the last case we've heard of. 
uh, they're going to pop up regularly if life uh, remains unchanged as it is. And we'll be back. There's going to be no, no, no end of crime. So neither one of us are going to be out of a job anytime soon. Bad for the world. Good for journalism. <laughs> Mark Shaker, a lot of fun and really educational talking to you. Thanks very much for coming on the Spy Talk podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Stay well. That was Mark Olshaker, co-author of the Mindhunter books, and you can find them everywhere. And of course, uh, a TV series developed out of it. Happy to have him on board. This reminded me of a case when I was covering the Department of Homeland Security, a deputy press secretary who I knew well, who I dealt with on a weekly, if not a daily basis, was arrested after he was exchanging sexually explicit messages online with someone who he thought was a 14-year-old girl. It actually was a sheriff's deputy. Mm -hmm. He spent several years in prison. You know, it's just not surprising, as Mark uh, suggested, that uh, the intelligence community as a general population is no different from everybody else. There's going to be a certain percentage of people who engage in this nefarious kind of behavior. And uh, we shouldn't be surprised when an FBI agent, CIA officer, police just show up in one of the dragnets or, you know, from a woman's complaint. Yeah, it certainly wasn't a surprise to me as a woman and a veteran of the broadcast industry where sexual harassment was a routine occurrence and sexual predation was not unknown. Uh, so this this interview was fascinating, disturbing, but it was also very familiar, as it would be, frankly, for most women of my generation, no matter what profession they were. Yeah, so sad. And I guess that uh, the morning show series certainly uh, rang some bells for you, Jean, after all your years. Uh, I'm not watching it. I don't watch anything that has to do with broadcasting the same way a lot of police officers who I know don't watch cop shows because they actually don't bear that much similarity to reality. So I haven't sampled that one. One thing he said that I hope is right, that context matters. It was okay back in the day to do that kind of stuff. Now in the Me Too movement, maybe not quite so okay, but I'm sure it's not eliminated. That's for sure. Of course, the cases we are talking about today with uh, Brian Jeffrey Raymond uh, and so on, these guys are real sociopaths. This is well beyond sexual harassment. This is a criminal behavior uh, that, as uh, Olshaker and others have told me, uh, most likely began well before they got into the intelligence or police arenas. And, and the mystery to me is still why they were so successful at hiding this behavior uh, from their agencies uh, when they went through the screening process. All I can say is the guy who was convicted at the Department of Homeland Security, who I dealt with all the time, it blew my mind when he got arrested. Never in any of my interactions with him was there ever a hint of any of this kind of behavior. So these folks, not only are they good at manipulating, as you discussed in the interview, they're also good at obfuscating and hiding their tracks and hiding their behaviors. Well, on that grim note, uh, we come to the end of another Spy Talk episode. We hope to come back next week for a more interesting chat with our guests from the intelligence community. And don't forget to subscribe to the Spy Talk podcast. That way you'll be sure to know when we put out a new episode every week. And we enjoy hearing from you too. 
We also have a PodTrack survey we'd love for you to take. You'll find it in our show description. And a reminder that you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Gene Meserve. Jeff, you are? I'm at SpyTalker or talk underscore dot co. So follow us. See you next week. I'm Gene Meserve. I'm Jeff Stein. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.